You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life. Welcome to this week's episode of SpyCast. This week you're going to hear the incredible true story of Martha Cohen. Martha was a young Jewish woman who went behind enemy lines into Nazi Germany. She did so armed with a pair of walking shoes, a cover story and about a half a ton of chutzpah. In this week's episode you'll hear the 101 year old tell her tale. Martha and I had a good long phone conversation that lasted almost two hours. I say this because it only stopped when I got tired. Martha recounts how she went from her childhood home in Metz along the Franco-German border to Los Angeles, California, where she currently resides. Her story is both uplifting and devastatingly sad. You'll hear about the rising tide of anti-Semitism in her region, the Nazi invasion and occupation of France, the execution of her fiancé, the siblings she couldn't save from Auschwitz, and the role she played gathering intelligence for the Allies as they prepared to enter Nazi Germany. This is a doozy of a spy story from the lips of an incredibly brave woman with the heart of a lion. Everything's good to go. Everything's good to go, ma'am. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Metz, M-E-T-Z, which is the capital of the state of Moselle, M-O-S-E-L-L-E, in Lorraine. And I was raised in Metz until 1939 when the government in August 1939 asked that those who can move to Poitiers, P-O-I-T-I-E-R-S, which is southwest of Paris, on the train line from Paris to Bordeaux. They had already organized a long time ago where all the cities and all the villages from the eastern France, northeastern France, would move away from the border because Metz was only 36 miles from the German border. When you mentioned August 1939, that was... We're talking about the Second World War and the rise of Nazi Germany, right? Yeah, it was for the, uh, before the Second World War started in September of 1939. Had your family been in the region for a long time? Yes, they were in Metz since 1896. You witnessed anti-Semitism growing up? Yeah, I witnessed anti-Semitism, but it was not very often. It happened 
mostly I remember two times. When I was five, about five years old, we left the synagogue, my father, my two brothers and I, and a group started to call us dirty Jews, a group of boys, but they were really very bad boys. And my father ran after them, and I was very, very happy that he did that, because that was the first time that somebody called me a dirty Jew, and I couldn't understand why they were doing that. You know, I was five years old. I said to myself, I'm a Jew, but I'm not dirty. And my father ran after them, and I didn't get along with my father very much. But that day, I loved him a lot because he defended us. And the second time, when I was about 10 years old, a girl in my neighborhood that was not a friend, I just knew her by sight. I came back from a store where my mother sent me to buy a dozen eggs, which I had in a little, what we call the filet, that's a very thin bag. And my that girl started call, calling me dirty chuchu. And I told her what I said before, I'm a Jew, but I'm not dirty. And she kept you know, singing, dirty Jew, dirty Jew. So I just broke my dozen eggs on the head and I ran home. And my mother didn't punish me. She told me I was right to do it. You have to remember, too, that Metz was very close to the border, only about 36 miles and we had a lot of Germans living in Metz. And they brought anti-Semitism once Hitler came to power. What did it feel like when the Nazis invaded France? That was a terrible tragedy. We couldn't understand what was going on. But it was such a chaos in France. So everything was so chaotic. We didn't even know what was going on most of the time. And, you know, for the last two or three weeks. And the, we were in Poitiers, I told you, which is southwest of Paris. And it became, Poitiers became, uh, stayed in the occupied, part of France by the German army. So we lived under the German at that time. But it was a terrible thing. And my sister and I, we, my oldest sister, Cecile, and I, we were going home for lunch and we saw the first German on a motorcycle. And I don't even remember why I said that, but I said, I hope he breaks his neck. And he fell at that time. <laughs> Can you tell listeners about what happened to the rest of your family? My oldest brother was a prisoner of war. He was in the, in the army, in the French army, in the Maginot line. And he became a prisoner when the Germans invaded the east of France. And he escaped when he heard, but the Germans did know that he understood German. He never told them. But he heard them say that the next day they would be transferred to a camp in Germany. So he escaped that evening. And he was able to come home to Poitiers. And my youngest brother was in the army. He was doing his military service in the army. And in 1940, after Marechal Pétain became the chief of the government, Jews had 
young man had no right to stay in the French army. So he was sent home too. So he joined us in 20. And in 90, and my two brothers were able to get, not together, but at separate times, they were able to get to the non-occupied France because as a prisoner of war escape, he would have been immediately sent back to Germany. So he went to non-occupied France, my oldest brother, and my younger brother did that a year or two years later when things became very dangerous for young men because we were very naive. We thought that only young men were in danger. And the whole family, the rest of the family, stayed in Poitiers. My oldest sister was in Paris. But that means I was now the oldest at home. I was number five. One of the boys, we were three boys and five girls. One of the boys died during World War One when he was two years old, so I never knew him. But we were raised two boys and five girls. I had four sisters, one older than I and three younger than I. And in 19... 42. On June 17, 1942, the German came to the house and arrested my sister. I did some research and I found out that my sister had been arrested by the Zippo. S-I-P-O. It's just initials of a very long word, because you know in Germany they take a word, other word, other word, other word, and make a huge word that you cannot find in any dictionary. But the Zippo came to the house and arrested her because she and I, we were helping a lot of people to cross from occupied to non-occupied friends. And every day, a lot of people would run our bell and ask us to help them. And we didn't know who they were. We didn't know from where they were coming, but they needed help. We could go once, one person once a week. So one week, I went to see her. And I brought her all the things my mother had prepared for her. And I told her, I reminded her that her mother needed her as much as the children. And she looked at me and said to me, don't you realize that if I escape, you are all going to be arrested? I had never thought about that. So on my way home, I had a very long way. I decided that we would all, who were still in Poitiers, escape crossing the line between occupied and non-occupied friends and go to non-occupied friends. And we did it. And we were successful. But my sister was never able to escape. She was later transferred to Drancy, a terrible camp near Paris, and then to to Pithiviers, from where she was deported on September 21st, 1942, to an unknown destination. In her last letter, she couldn't write to us. We were now in unoccupied France. So she wrote to a friend in Poitiers. And in her positive script, she added, at the last rumors, we are going to Metz to work 
So no need to dramatize. But in reality, years, years later, we found out that she had been sent to Auschwitz and she never came back. So that's the story of my sister. It was fascinating and I'm very sorry about your sister. That must have been so tough. And you had a fiancé, Jacques? It was the hardest thing for me because even now I feel that I, I did not help her enough. I could not, but I still feel guilty about it because I saved all the rest of my family but not her. You, you were very brave. But you are talking about my fiancé, Jacques Delaunay. Mm. Yeah, we were engaged. He was a medical student. I met him because he was a classmate of my sister. And she invited him for my 21st birthday. We had a party in my house. And he came and that where we started to know each other. I had never met him before. So Jacques was, became engaged in the resistance in 1943. I met him in Paris where he came to, to pass an examination, for a medical examination to become an intern in the hospitals. But then he told me that he was now engaged in the resistance, and I told him he couldn't go back to Poitiers. He had to immediately go south to non-occupied France, to Spain, and try to get to England to join the goal. But he told me he had to go back to Poitiers, which he did. And he was arrested with his brother, Mark, and three other young men, and all students in the University of Poitiers. And they were first very tortured by the French police, which arrested them. They were not arrested by the Germans. They were arrested by the French, and then they were given over, and the French had a trial, and they were defended by a very well-known lawyer who told the judges that they were young students who loved the country and had done things to defend the country, and they should not be condemned to death. So they were condemned to forced labor. But the Germans took them over because they had sabotaged a munition train and they were condemned to death. All four of them were shot on October 6, 1943 on Mont Valérien in Paris the worst prison in Paris at the time. And I learned that Jacques had been probably shot because they said four on the five were shot and one was still in first labor. So I didn't know if Jacques was one, the one who was not shot or not. But in October 1943, I read in the newspaper of Marseille where I was in school finishing my studies as a nurse. I read in the paper that four of them had been shot. So I wrote to a friend in Poitiers a letter that she understood. And she answered me, that that patient had died. So I knew that, I finally knew that Jacques had died. So that's the story of Jacques. And that happened in 1943. 
And tell us how you joined the French Army's intelligence service, Martha. I was in the French Army before, for three weeks before I joined the intelligence service. And when I arrived in Alsace, where the front was at that time, and where the first French Army of the Ladre de Tassigny was located, I was told that I was not going to be a nurse, but a social worker. I was trained in nursing. I had not the first concept of what it entailed to be a social worker. But in the armies, and in that counts for all armies of the world, if you are told you're a social worker, that's what you are. So for three weeks, I was a social worker. And then one day, crossing the square of the town, that's my next question. I met the colonel of the regiment in 1943. We were all told that a resident had killed the first German on the metro station Barbès Rochechoir in Paris. And he had escaped, but we didn't know his name. That was highly secret. But when I joined that regiment, the 151 Regiment of Infantry, which was in Metz, before 1939, and Maréchal Pétain was then colonel de l'Atre de Tassigny, who was Maréchal when I joined the army in 1942, no, 44. In 1944, he was the, the chief of the 151 regiment of infantry in Metz. So, but I never met, had met the colonel before. But when I crossed the little square at lunchtime, I met him. And I had heard that in the regiment, when I met them, that he was the resident who had killed the first German on the metro station Barbès Rochechoir in 1943. And Colonel, it was Colonel Fabia, Pierre Fabia. And he stopped me and he asked me to answer his phone during lunch break. So I went with him to the, to his office. He showed me around and leaving. He was very courteous. He told me, I'm sorry. I have nothing to read for you here. There are only German books. And I answered, that's quite all right. I read German fluently. So extremely interested. He walked back towards me and asked me if I spoke German. And I told him, yes as well as French. Then he explained to me that in Germany, all males from the age of 12 to old age were all called in the army and were in uniform. So if any male of that age from 12 to old age would walk in the streets of Germany in civilian clothes, that person would be immediately noticed and arrested. That's why they needed women. And he asked me if I accepted to be transferred to the intelligence service of the First Army, which I accepted. And that's how I became a spy. We'll be right back after this. 
Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Tell us more about the types of things you did for the French army. After I was trained to become a spy, I underwent an extremely intensive training. And when the training was terminated, they asked me to create my own alibi because it would stick much better than an alibi given to me. So I created my own alibi, presented it, it was accepted. After that, I was assigned to the Commando of Africa, a regiment of the First French Army. They all came from North Africa, from Algeria. And they had fought in Eritrea, in North Africa, they had found, it's not anymore North Africa, but it's in Africa, and they had found in Italy, in Corsica, and now they were fighting in France. So I was very flattered to be assigned to such a unit. Colonel Bouvet asked me to interrogate, oh, that was before we overcame that. Colonel Bouvet, right after I met him, asked me to interrogate prisoners of war to know the plan of retreat from the German, the German said, from Alsace to Germany. And I interrogated generals and colonels the subalterns would have known anything about the plan of retreat. But every army in the world has a plan of retreat as well as a plan of attack because you never know how things will turn out. And I interrogated these prisoners of war and I can boast about it because in one of the citations of my Croix de Guerre, which is a medal of the French army, it is written that I provided Colonel Bouvet with precise information, which was later confirmed about the plan of retreat of the Germans. So that's my first achievement in the army. After that, Colonel Bouvet asked me to cross the front in Alsace. And I tried 13 times the front in Alsace. And I was never successful. During the war, everything is so fluid and things change very fast. I was told by the army that I had to go from A to B, and at B, I would find certain things. But when I arrived at B, there was nothing I could find, so I could not proceed. That's one of the reasons which happened several times. There were other reasons. We had military guides 
who, who explained to me what I will find on the ground and how to proceed on the ground from A to B. But they are humans and they make mistakes twice. So military guide made mistakes. Do you want an example? Yes, please. Okay. One night, I was always taken very late at night. One night, two officers drove me by ship and stopped near a huge field covered in snow. It was February 1945. They told me to cross the field and go northwest where I will find a small town where a group of German soldiers to mix with them, to follow them, and to send as much information I could. I had only a little suitcase with clothes of which I had taken all the labels off so nobody could tell they came from France. But I had no map. I had no compass. I had no arm. I had no radio. I had nothing in writing. Everything I needed to know was in my memory. So I took my little suitcase and I started walking on that field covered with snow. I didn't even have a flashlight. And suddenly I heard a huge crack. And here I was, immersed in ice-cold water of a canal, because there are lots of canals, and the guide, the military guide, had forgotten to tell me there was a canal. And that night, I couldn't tell the difference, because there was snow all over. So I popped up from the canal and tried to get out. You can understand that I couldn't call for help. I had to do it on my own. So I tried to grasp the edge of the canal, but everything was so frozen that it was impossible to get out of the canal, which was very narrow, like all man-made canals. I was now much heavier because I was drenched in that ice-cold water from head to toe. So it took me a very, very long time to find a place where I was able finally to get out of the canal. And I walked all night, drenched in that ice-cold water by an extremely cold and dark night at daybreak. I noticed that my, print, my footprint showed that I had walked in circle all night. And years later, I read in a magazine that if you have no compass and you have no other way of directing yourself, by a very dark night, you will walk in circle which explained why I had done that very strange, weird thing. And that's one of the examples why certain times I could not cross into the German lines. So after that, the captain who directed our antenna, that was the name we had for our little groups, which means communication. And the captain decided that I was going to go through to Germany, through Switzerland. Now, Switzerland was neutral, but the Swiss had held the Germans as long as the Germans were victorious. Now, we were victorious they were helping us. 
that's neutrality. So I was taken to by one of our officers to Basel. Le Maire stopped the car near a forest and we crossed the forest by foot and on the other side of the forest he showed me a huge field which was bordered on the northern edge by a small country road. The field and the forest were Switzerland, but the road was Germany. And on that field, there was no barrier whatsoever. You could cross from the field onto the road. But the road was under the surveillance of two German military sentinels, heavily armed, which came, one from the western edge of the width of the field, walked to about the center of the field, and the other sentinel came from the west, walked towards the center, met the first one, they talked two, three seconds, turned their back, and walked to the edge of the field on each side. And they were doing that constantly without stopping. So Mr. Le Maire told me towards evening, but when it's still very light, I will tell you that the time to go. And you have to crawl along the field and hide behind the bushes near the road when the German sentinels have turned them back and walked to the edges of the field on both sides. And when they come back and leave again and turn them back to you walking to the edges of the field, you go, you get up, walk on the road, walk towards the east, towards Singen, and you will meet the German sentinel coming back from the eastern edge. And he explained to me what I will do, that I have to show him my identity card if he asks for it, and then walk away as fast as I can, but not too fast to become suspicious before he meets the other sentinel and they may talk about me. So we stayed with the Lemaire in me in that forest all afternoon. Mr. Lemaire was a middle-aged man. I was 24 years old. He talked to me about his wife and children and a lot of other things. And then suddenly in the afternoon, with a very strange smile, he said to me, you make me kill tonight, so why not have a good time now? but that was not on my agenda. So after that, we talked about other things and throughout the evening, but when it was still very light, he told me now is the time. I took my little suitcase in which I again had taken off all the labels of my clothes. Now I had two new things in my suitcase which were given me the day before I left. I was given vouchers to buy everything I needed in Germany. But because everything was on vouchers, like in France, but nobody in my intelligence service was able to tell me how to proceed with the vouchers. Because you cannot just give a voucher. You have to know how to proceed with it. But nobody knew enough about what was going on in Germany at that time. And I was given a lot of 
German money to be able to pay for anything I needed. So when Mr. Le Maire told me it was time to go, I took my little suitcase and I crawled along the field and hid behind the bushes. And until then, everything was perfect. But once behind the bushes, I suddenly realized the immensity of what I was going to undertake. And I had never time before. I was kept so busy. I never had time to really think of what I was going to do in Germany. And I was told that I needed, I was sent for two purposes. I was sent for my military information, but also information how the Germans reacted to the war and behaved, which was very important for when the Allies were invading Germany. So once I lied behind the bushes, I suddenly became so terrified by what I was going to go do in Germany. And I was terrified mostly because I knew that it was extremely important that I know how to proceed with the vouchers. I became so terrified that I was absolutely paralyzed by fear. And it took me a very long time to overcome that fear. But suddenly, something blinked in my brain, and I remembered something which made me get up, take my little suitcase, and crawl and walk onto the road when the German sentinels were both walking to the edges of the field. And when I walked on the road, I met the sentinel which came back from the eastern edge, and I raised my right arm, Hi, little, and he asked me for my identity card. I was called now Martha Ulrich, and like I told you, I had an alibi, a very good alibi in Germany, but the sentinel looked at my card, at my identity card, which was forged by the intelligence service. I was now called Martha Ulrich. And he, I wondered if he too would now, would re recognize that the card had been forged but he gave it back to me without questioning. I was now in Germany. So I walked away as fast as I could, but not too fast. And I arrived in Singen, which was only two kilometers from the place in the enclave where I had crossed from Switzerland into Germany. And when I arrived, it was already very dark because I had waited so long to get up and walk. And I saw two men sitting at the center of Singen near a well. One of them had a flashlight that he opened sometimes, and I saw they had armbands that were from the civic security. So I walked towards them, coughing so they don't get surprised and, and shoot me. And they were very nice. They told me where the house I was looking for was. It was very close by because I had an address in Singen. I walked to that room and I walked up two flights and rang a bell. 
and a woman, a young woman, already in a robe and nightgown, opened the door and asked me what I wanted. And I told you her who sent me, and she became very hospitable immediately and told me to come in. And she gave me some food, and she gave me a room. I slept all night, and the next morning I got up. I went into the kitchen where she was already cooking, and I noticed immediately that she was in a very bad mood. And she told me I couldn't sleep all night. I noticed that your stockings were completely torn. I had fallen in craters because on the road there were many craters in the dark. I didn't see them. And I had fallen in the in the craters on the road because Singen had been bombarded heavily by the Allied because they were manufacturing things for the German army. And then she looked at me straight in the eyes and told me, Fräulein, which means young girl in German, are you a spy? I was standing in front of her. I bent a little bit. I started laughing immediately. I bent a little bit, stretched out my two arms, and told her, do I look like a spy? And she looked at me and started laughing too. And we became extremely good friends. I helped her a lot with a little boy. Her, her husband was on the Eastern Front and she had no news for several weeks, months. She didn't know what happened to him because at that time, there were hundreds, thousands and thousands of German families had no news of their loved ones in the army because everything was had become so chaotic in Germany that they were without news. And I knew that. And that's why in my alibi, I had a German fiancé, and when I told my handlers that I needed a German military fiancé, they went to a prisoner of war camp, and they found Hans, which they felt was a good fiancé for me. And they made him write letters and sign pictures to my sister, Martha Ulrich. And I had these letters. And everywhere I went in Germany, that helped me greatly because so many people had no news from their own military, German military people. That woman, the next day evening, took me to the train station because nothing, no transportation worked in daytime because of the Allied bombardment. Train worked only at night. Like buses, military cars, nothing functioned in daytime, only at night. So I took a train to Freiburg, but when we arrived at the station, she took out of my hand the voucher without me asking her, and he filled it out. That's how I learned how to use a voucher. She saved my life without knowing it. I would have been arrested immediately if they had noticed that I didn't know how to use a voucher. So I arrived in in Freiburg the next morning, and I never took another train because in the train they constantly checked our papers every few minutes. 
And every time they looked at my garm, I was uh, my identity garm. I was afraid they would discover it was false. And you were able to report some significant pieces of information, right? Yeah, but yeah, but I had no radio. To have a radio, you have to be two. You cannot be alone and have a radio. So I had one place where I could, from where I can report, but I had to walk from Freiburg the Swiss border where that family lived in a farm. They were German Catholics, very religious and very anti-Hitler. And one of their daughters was married to an Alsatian agent who was in my service. And that husband would come to the border. The farm was only a half, less than a half of a mile from the Swiss border. The husband would come on the border and stay on the Swiss side of the wire. And the wife would stay on the German side of the Swiss border. She would give him my letters and he would give her the letters he brought from my service. And that's how I got information. But I had to walk all that distance every time I needed to give information. And I walked three times back and forth from Freiburg to the border. I did not know what was going on in Germany, really. So I was watching what people were doing. And I noticed that in daytime, they walked, but they always walked in groups. They never walked separately. So I I joined a group, only going in my direction. And in that group was an SS who came back from the Russian front. And he told us right away that he had been wounded on the Russian front and he came back from the hospital and he was now assigned to the Siegfried line. And as we walked, it happened that I walked next to him. He said that he smelled the shoe a mile away, but that morning his smell was pretty bad because he never discovered that I was Jewish. But as we walked, and it was telling us all the atrocities that the SS and other personnel had committed on the Eastern Front, which was much much, much worse than anything, all the atrocities they committed on the Western Front. So, as we walked, he started to, he suddenly fainted. And I was a nurse, a German nurse on my alibi, so I took care of him. And when he regained consciousness, he was so grateful that I had taken care of him that he invited me to visit him in the Siegfried line and he gave me his phone number and I heard on the German radio that the Allied armies were going to invade any minute. So that's when I decided to walk to the Siegfried line to visit my my friend SS. And when I arrived at the Siegfried line, I discovered that the Siegfried line had been completely evacuated in that region. And the last stragglers were leaving. And they told me that 
he said, Siegfried Line was completely, completely evacuated. So I walked back to Freiburg as fast as I could, so other 10 kilometers. And when I arrived in Freiburg, the people of the city had were running to their homes to lock up because they were terrified at the thought of a foreign army invading them. And I understood because I had lived through that in Poitiers. So I went to the main artery and I waited, the main boulevard, and I waited. And the first tank arrived and drove towards me. How was I going to explain to them that I was a friend and not an enemy? I had no document, none, none, to prove who I was. So I walked in the middle of the boulevard and I raised my right arm as high as I could. And I made the V sign, the victory sign of Winston Churchill to show them that I'm a friend and hoping they would understand that. And as I am very, very lucky, the tank did not kill me, but stopped. And the officer, I asked the officer in charge to come down, and he came down. I was quite assertive, I must say. When he came down, I told him that I had very important information and to take me immediately to headquarters. To the, and I discovered that I was even more lucky because it was a French army which invaded Freiburg. If an English-speaking army had invaded Freiburg, I would not have been able to communicate with them because I didn't speak English yet. But with the French army, there was no problem. So that officer took me on the tank and drove me to the headquarters where I met Commandant Petit of the Second Suave, another regiment from North Africa, from the First Army. So I told Commandant Petit immediately that I came back from the Siegfried Line where it was completely evacuated. And he looked at me and said, who knows that it's true? It may be a trap. So I took a piece of paper and a pen on his desk and I wrote a phone number because we had the same technology as the American Army to call any service in the field. So he called my service, which was very happy to hear that I was still alive. Your story is very powerful, Martha. And what did you do after the war? Oh, after the war, I, I stayed in Germany until January 46, and I left from Vietnam. I was a nurse in Vietnam, no more intelligence service. I never did any intelligence service then. Colonel Bouvet and Commodore Petit both asked me to help them with intelligence after the war in Germany was finished, but I refused. I did not want to do that anymore. Mostly in Vietnam. Commodore Petit asked me to do that in Vietnam. And that was a type of intelligence service I would never accept. He asked me to go out with all Chinese men to find out how much money they give to the Viet Cong. And that was something I would never have done. I never was in intelligence, but I never forgot what I did. 
and I'm very proud of what I did. You should be very proud. You were incredibly brave. Thank you. When did you come to the United States, Martha? Because you're in Los Angeles now, is that correct? I came to the United States in in June 1956. My husband, Major Cohn, is an American who I met in Geneva, in Switzerland. I was back in school in Switzerland, and he was in school too in Switzerland. And we met socially. That was 10 years after Jacques had died because I had made a vow never to marry. And you see, I changed my mind. Thanks ever so much for your time. It's been amazing to speak to you. I'm humbled and honoured to have spoken to you. Thank you. I didn't talk about all that for many years, but since I stopped talking, I keep talking. (laughs) Well, thank you for talking to me. (laughs) Yeah, as long as I live. You know, my husband said that's what makes me alive. alive. Yeah, I, I mean, you're very much alive. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.